Well, hey, dealmakers, welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Really glad that you're here today. We have exciting guest today, Navy SEAL Chad Williams, to talk about his lessons learned that can apply directly to multifamily. Before we get into that, though, I just want to remind you, Dealmaker Live is coming up next week, July 15 to 17 in Dallas at the Hilton Anatole. It's going to be awesome. We were there in person last, of course, in 2019. Uh, so we'd love to see you in person there. We still have a few tickets available. We also have a live stream option if that is more comfortable for you. But we have uh, Chad Williams, uh, you'll hear from today, keynoting. We got Brandon Turner there in person. Uh, we have an amazing lineup of speakers that are going to talk about all aspects of multifamily investing, from finding deals, what's working now, to raising capital as well. So go to dealmakerliveevent.com and sign up when you can there. Now, today on the show, uh, instead of our normal co-host, Garrett Lynch, we're going to have Drew Niffen on the call here today. He's a president of Nighthawk because he's the one who brought in Chad Williams. And so I wanted him to interview him as well. Before we get into that, though, well, let's get him on the show. Drew, how's it going? Good. How are you, Michael? Well, it's good. Glad to have you here in the show. And, and I know that you brought Chad and you know him pretty well. And so I'm already looking forward to the interview here. But one of the things that I want to talk about is because we get this question a lot is, how do you serve investors? What do we do to serve our investors? It's an awesome question because you, you we you need to start from the standpoint of the investors and the tremendous trust they're placing in us. So these are people that we know through the podcast. Maybe we've met them at a conference, but they're not deep, long life friends. And yet they're taking an extraordinary amount of their resources, of their time, of their future, and they're putting it with us. And so when you understand that we have their trust, it really prompts you to want to serve them so well. So we do it through communication, through carefully underwriting our deals and trying to do everything we can to steward their money well. Well, and, and, and the other reason we serve is uh, we serve our active entrepreneurs by helping them get started with multifamily investing so they can quit their jobs, have financial freedom. Right. Interestingly, the passive investor wants the same thing. They do. Yep. We all do. We all, we, we all want that freedom and there's different avenues to get it. So we're trying to serve that in all these different ways. Well, that's that's right. So, you know, the, uh, what they're looking, the only difference is that they have money to invest. They would otherwise invest in a stock market. And these could be, you know, and, and the, their biggest issue is they don't have uh, an exit strategy out of their law firm or their medical practice or their, their corporate career. And so this is a mechanism to do that. Investing passive passively in multifamily gives them cash flow, uh, gives them wealth creation, also tax benefits. Yep. And I was just talking to an investor the other day who said, you know what? I don't want a property that just gives me appreciation. Like when you put your money in a mutual fund, you might get appreciation, but there's no cash flow. If you don't have cash flow, it doesn't give you the opportunity to sort of step back and spend more time with family. If you are buying an asset that gives you the cash flow as well as the appreciation, it's a whole different ballgame as far as the opportunities that it opens up for you. So that's what we're trying to do at Nighthawk. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if you're interested in, in learning more about passive investing, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash report. And there's a report here that compares the stock market to real estate investing. And you also get on our list and you can join our investment club when you do that as well. We'll have a conversation with you if you're ready to invest with us as well. All right. Well, let's get into our, our, our guest here. We got Chad Williams. He is the best selling author of the book Seal of God. He's an in demand keynote speaker speaking all over the country, all over the world. And he really draws on his experience as a SEAL. He's an engaging speaker, and he talks about things around leadership, teamwork, integrity, safety, mental toughness, discipline, overcoming adversity, and grit. And a lot of those, if not all of them, apply directly to multifamily investing. And so we've drilled down on a few that will really help you overcome adversity and stay on track. So let's get right in the call here with Chad Williams. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. 
where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Block. Chad Williams, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Well, it's going to be great. I actually read your book, Seal of God, uh, shortly in uh, just a little while ago. And what a phenomenal story you have, man. I mean, what a what a wild ride. And there's so many lessons that you're going to share with Dealmaker Live coming up shortly. But I wanted to have them on the podcast just to kind of maybe talk about a few of them because you are there's so many life lessons that you learn being in, in Navy and, and life in general that have direct application to us as multifamily investors. So want to get into that, but give us a little background on your crazy story, man. Sure. Yeah. And kind of to your point, you know, whatever works in the battlefield for the, the SEAL teams in combat, you know, most likely it'll probably work in a, a peaceful, you know, situation on the home front. But to kind of give folks an idea of, you know, what it is that we do in the SEAL teams or what I was doing on the last deployment I was involved in out in Iraq, we were given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with this group that's called the ISOF, it's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to teach them how to fight their own fights. And so the best way to do that is not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. Uh, well, if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good because you know we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes who are making the world a better place and coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation, we weren't really sure if they were ready for us to pass that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, why don't we try and make this final operation a sort of graduation operation? We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up and we'll be there with them just in case things hit the fan. You know, so they start from scratch. They're applying a lot of the principles that we taught them in terms of, you know, tracking down uh, sources, getting information, putting the operation together. Well, they find out about this guy that's a Iraqi policeman by day. He wears that uniform. But at night, back home, as it turns out, he's one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so they come up with this whole plan, how they want to approach the house, get in, grab this guy and extract. We're looking at it. It all checks out. Looks pretty good. But they did have one complaint that they shared with us. So they felt they got shot at more than we and the SEAL teams did. And they thought they figured out why. And so we're kind of curious. Okay, what do you think it is? And they're just convinced, absolutely convinced that it is the color of our uniforms, we're like, really? The color of our uniforms, not the way we shoot, move, communicate, nothing to do with our tactics. You think it comes down to the mere color of a uniform? And they're just convinced of this. And so they're saying, would you be willing to maybe take off your American colored uniforms and for this final operation, you know, put on our ISOFT colored uniforms? Like, all right, so you want us to put your uniforms on to get shot at more with you? And they're like, yeah, it's like, fine. It's not about the uniforms, but I'll take the souvenir home. So we get dressed up like them. Kind of a funny thing. You know, my dark complexion start growing out a little facial hair. Now I got the Iraqi uniform on. The guys on my team are hassling me saying, hey, Williams, you're starting to blend in with you're a native, now, aren't you? <laughs> and so on this night, I'm, I'm standing up in the Humvee, that section called the tour. I got the 50 caliber machine gun in front of me. And uh, for those that don't know out there, let's just say it's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. And I'm looking through my night vision goggles, my green little world going over this mental inventory, thinking about all the things I know about this night, starting off with my weapon. It's headspace and time. That means it's ready to go. I know where this guy lives, how we're going to get in, grab him, extract. But one unique thing I couldn't help but to think about on this night is that I knew this was the final operation, which also meant I know just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in my hometown. Huntington Beach, California, 
surfing in the ocean. But what I didn't know, none of us knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown the absolute worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we're being set up on an ambush and we suddenly find ourselves engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to shoot, move, communicate, do what we do best as SEALs and apply some of the principles that I'm going to be sharing at DealMaker Live that led to the obvious conclusion that I came out of that situation alive. And so if folks want to know how that night played out, they're just going to have to show up. <laughs> so so I have a question for you, Chad. You know, you're, you're talking about training the ice off. And one of the direct corollaries there in multifamily is us as an organization beginning to trust our on-site teams. Because I have a lot of thoughts, a lot of opinions up top, maybe like you did when you were a SEAL training the ice off about how things ought to be. But at some time, you have to trust and delegate your to your team and allow them to implement the plan. So, you know, what was it like for you to train the ice off? And at some point in time, even if it meant literally someone's life in danger to sort of say, all right, here's the baton, you go and run that mission. What's it like for you to make those types of transitions? That's definitely a difficult one because it is life and death. And you're literally trusting these guys to cover your back when the bullets are flying. And so there is a little bit of development there, right? You don't, you don't just hand your trust over to anybody right away. And so I think that the best way to develop that relationship is through servant leadership, because there's just something about servant leadership. It's, it's the glue that really holds everything together. A lot of people are after you know, that teamwork. How do I have a team like the SEAL teams? And as I reflect back on it, it's, it's really all about loyalty. It's really all about kind of having that, that sense of we're family. This is a family deal. And the only way that I know of that you can really create that atmosphere is by being a servant leader. And so you can contrast that with its opposite. You know, the opposite of a servant leader, it's pretty obvious, is a, is a prideful, arrogant leader. And we've all worked with people like this that are like smoke to the eyes, you know, and maybe they don't start off that way. You know, there's something sometimes about, you know, rising to a position. And as you rise up, you know, with that position, the pitfalls of pride come creeping in. And maybe they're not an authority over you. They're just a peer. You're just going to do whatever you got to do with this person to kind of get by to keep everything on an even keel, to keep everything copacetic. But somebody like that, yeah, they're really irritating to be around and they'll never have the loyalty of the people that are around them. Everyone will only do whatever they got to do to collect the paycheck at the end of the day. As soon as a better deal comes along, there's a better opportunity, they're going to jump ship. They're going to get away from this person. And so that's a prideful, arrogant leader. And it, he doesn't create that atmosphere of loyalty and trust Whereas a servant leader, we hear that term get thrown around a lot. I think the best way to think about like, what is a servant leader is go back 2000 years ago and just strictly from a historical basis. I'm not trying to be, you know, theological, but never was there a name so hated or so loved. And whether you love him or hate him, there's one thing you cannot deny about Jesus of Nazareth. He knew how to create a team of loyalty and he is what we would call a servant leader. So again, strictly just historical analysis here. He's known for saying, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And most are familiar with that time where he got down on his hands and knees at one point and he washed, we could call his subordinates feet. And what happened with that? Well, what happened with that is something came out of that, that I think that, that money can't really buy. It's true loyalty, like from the heart. So that when he cast his vision to them, like, hey, guys, this is the direction I want to go. This is where I want to take the team. This is where we're going. Uh, not only were they willing to do it, 
to collect a paycheck at the end of the day, in a sense, they were willing to go above and beyond the extra mile. They're literally willing to put their lives on the line in the process. This is something that my mentor instilled in me, Scott Helvenston, who is an extraordinary Navy SEAL. When we would get together, he would tell me, Junior, in the SEAL teams, it's never about yourself. It's always about the team first. This is the order of priorities, the team, and then your buddy or your partner, and then the me. And so the I always comes last. And if that's the way that it is, if you're really esteeming the needs of others as greater than your own, and you're creating this atmosphere where everybody is doing this, you create that sort of family dynamic, that teamwork where everyone's looking out for one another. And that's a trust that not many people could really try and get between, you know, at that point. So when I'm going through a house and maybe I'm getting shot at, you know, from, you know, the side, I'm not looking out after myself. I'm not covering my back because I'm actually pointed down covering my buddy's back. But guess what? He's covering my back as well. And so if we're practicing this sort of servant leadership, esteeming the needs of others is greater, you know, than our own, you're creating that sort of family dynamic. And that's what kind of began to develop with this group, the ISOF. And I will say, you know, that it wasn't them that set us up on that ambush. It was just a really bad coincidence that we happened to be wearing their uniforms and it had the appearances though they did. And I don't want to give away the details for anyone that does show up dealmaker, but there was a family dynamic that we had with the ISOF. They were getting shot at right there with us. Now, Chad, you speak all over the country and you know, you're, you're meeting with corporate executives and entrepreneurs. Like, What is a kind of a, a dominant theme that you feel like you picked up in the, in the seals that applies to business or even real estate investing? I think dealing with adversity because nobody's immune to it. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I mean, if you've made it this far in life, you've definitely already faced some adversity. And the thing is that we have to come to grips with is that there's going to be more, like nobody's immune to it. And so it's like a bad weather system that you have no control over. Like you're going to get hit with the next hurricane, the next tornado, like things are going to come along and they're really going to tear you up and you can't control that. And I don't say, say that to be a downer. It's, it's more, I'm saying that, you know, so that you have prior preparation. Like we understand that there's going to be a storm coming and we can't keep it from coming and we don't get a custom pick. Like, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be the tornado or the hurricane or the tsunami? You can't control that, but we still have control over something. And the thing that we have control over still is the way that we respond. Ultimately, we are the determiner of whether or not that adversity that we face will be what we could call a wing or a weight. You know, will you allow it to be a weight that just sinks you, leaves you knocked down, never to get back up again? People see what he or she got hit with and they go, wow, okay, they're out for the count. They're never resurfacing from that one. Or do you find a wing in the moment somehow, which is really just a way to rise to the occasion? This is what we call it in the SEAL teams, forged by adversity. And so that adversity will either be a weight that just sinks you, leaves you knocked down, you fail because of it, or you will be forged by it. And so often people that persevere and do great things, often adversity was the shaping process. It was the forging process that made them into, you know, who they are. And so I just try and communicate to people that you immediately need to be looking for that wing. Are you going to allow it to be a weight or are you going to look for the wing? You got to find the wing in the moment, you know, somehow. And adversity comes in a lot of different forms. This is whole life stuff. You know, this isn't just in the business world, but, you know, you and I, we're all going to get that conversation or that phone call where the family gets hit with bad news. You know, and they're going to look to you as dad or mom, 
You know, they're going to look to you as the leader. Hey, how do we respond, you know, in this moment? And if you're running around like a chicken with its head cut off, you're just a liability, you know, to everybody else. You're a liability to your family. So this is whole life stuff. You got to find the wing in the moment somehow. And it's case by case basis. You know, just kind of give an example. You know, my mentor who I just mentioned, Scott Helvenston, Navy SEAL, he was tragically murdered in an ambush in Fallujah, Iraq. And I found out about it by turning on the television and I'm seeing actual footage of the vehicle that he was in engulfed in flames. I'm watching footage of, of him getting dragged lifelessly through the streets of Fallujah behind a car with rope wrapped around his legs. I'm watching him, you know, get set on fire as they're hanging him upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge. And they're just gleefully chanting in Arabic, you know, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans as they stare into this camera. And so that was definitely not part of the plan in life. I was just on a phone call with him as he's reminding me of the timeline, how he's about to get back in a couple months and I'm about to start SEAL training really soon. And he's telling me how he's going to be back in time to see me go through it. But one of the things he said on the phone was, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so to hear that from my mentor, some guy that, you know, I, 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 he's like a second father to me, like that gave me so much confidence hearing that from him. But then after losing him and then seeing all these things happen, and then being presented with like, hey, are you just not going to go through with this now? You know, I had my family begging me not to go in. Like, don't go through with this. Don't try and be a seal. Look what happened to Scott. If this happened to him, it could happen to you. They're saying, look, if you haven't actually gone to boot camp yet, you're not officially signed up. Just pull the plug. Like, don't go forward with this. You and had so the choice very, at that moment to let it be a wing or a weight, right? That was a exactly. pivot moment for you. Very disoriented, not sure what to do. And I found the wing in that moment, in that conversation, in those words, Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so that was the forging. That was the wing. And that's what I'm saying is that it's case by case basis. Look for it though. Look for the wing in that moment. Look how you are going to be shaped and chiseled by this. And so often that chiseling process is very uncomfortable, right? You know, the hammer's out and the chisel and chunks are coming off and it hurts but there is a design. There is something being sculpted here. If you want to work with a full-time syndicator to help you get up to speed faster, get your first deal done this year, and scale your portfolio so you can quit your job, then check out our mentoring program. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. It's the only program out there that actually guarantees results. That's right. We actually guarantee that you do your first deal in the first year. Otherwise, we'll keep working with you. And uh, set up a, a strategy session call and explore whether it's right for you. It's themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Chad, one thing that you know the military and, and SEALs are famous for is, is, in a sense, never giving up, having phenomenal tenaciousness. And you're speaking to this right now. At the same time, there are times where strategically, it doesn't make sense to continue. You might want to pull back. You don't want to, if you know that you're outmanned you know, 50 to 1 and it's an option, it's not giving up or quitting. It's being strategic and stepping back, perhaps. Maybe you disagree with that. But my, my question is, are there times, whether in, in the life of a SEAL or in the life of a business person, where it makes sense to pull back and not continue forward into a situation where it's sort of insurmountable to win that battle or that tactical issue? Absolutely. I, I think in situations where you get ambushed, you know, no operation ever goes exactly as planned, but you do have an idea in your mind. But when things go completely sideways, 
it's better to try and get out of that situation alive rather than just try and tough it out and go forward and fight through. And so like the first words over the radio from my assault leader, you know, in that ambush was, all right, boys, we're going to get out here alive, but I need you to push left. So basically he's informing us that we're going back home, right? But at the same time, we're going to give a little bit of an offense, you know, from the left over here. And one of the things I appreciate about how he said that was just, he demonstrated this ability to control his emotions and actions, regardless of the circumstances. Could you imagine if he would have come over the radio in panic and screaming like every man for himself, like, you know, like, how are we going to get out of here alive? That would have created this disunity amongst the team. And we wouldn't have done the best that we can do, you know, in that situation. And so that's again, why as a leader, it's so important to control your emotions and actions regardless of circumstances, because you are going to be the one that sets the tone and you can really mess things up. It doesn't guarantee success. The way that guy came over the radio, my assault leader didn't guarantee that we're getting out of there alive. It didn't guarantee that we're going to, you know, win the battle in that moment. But what it did do is it just at least set us up with the best possible conditions for us to do what we're best at because that calmness that he had in the SEAL teams, we call it calmness is contagious, right? And so a good example of that would be, I go back to 9-11, President Bush, you know, there he is reading some books to children before he gets the news that airplanes are going into the building. And now we can pinpoint the moment as the media, you know, they follow the president around everywhere they go. We can pinpoint that moment back in time, you know, where Andy Carr comes walking across a classroom and he whispers into the president's ear. No one knows what he says there. Now we know it was when he was informed, Mr. President, America is under attack. And if you look at the way he responded in that moment, he's actually been criticized by a lot of people for the way he responded because they felt like he didn't show enough emotion. It was as though he knew this happened before it ever happened. And then crazy conspiracy theories go around, you know, that he was in on it somehow because he just didn't seem to show this sort of panic or this upsetness. But looking back, he explains what was going on inside of his mind as a leader, the leader of our nation. He goes, look, just like everybody else, of course, I have those emotions welling up within me as an American. I'm thinking who would do this to us? But unlike everybody else, I'm in a very unique leadership position. And what he picked up on on the fly, and I really appreciate this about him. And this is just something I think it only comes with prior preparation and being in a leadership position for some time as he realized that in that moment, it's not time to respond with feelings and emotions, a quiver of the chin, showing timidity or a tear because he has cameras pointed at him. And they're recording him and he can see the commotion going on in the background as phones are going off and there's all kinds of just things going on. He realized they're getting the same information I just got and they're focusing in on me right now, the camera. And so he realized it's time to have calmness. It's time to have that ability to control emotions and actions regardless of circumstances. Tears did come, but not there. They came up on, on Air Force One. That calmness does come with adversity, right? Because you, a lot of people, you know, you, you, I, I wasn't born being calm, right? But I, I went through a variety of financial setbacks uh, in the early days and I was not calm, you know, in, in the beginning. I was like worrying, couldn't sleep. And, and so once you accept, you know, you kind of resist what is 
and it might take weeks or months to accept it. Finally, you accept it, and then something else happens, and you again, you resist, and you're not calm. I just found that over time, as adversity found me, I became calmer and calmer and calmer. So it, it takes a while to, to get to that point, and adversity helps you because you're right. If you're in a situation, let's say you're doing a deal and something happens and you freak out, it's going to get worse versus staying calm like you're saying, like President Bush did, and being able to handle a major crisis from a, a much better position. The other thing also is talking about adversity. You know, when you're going through Navy SEAL training, which was, of course, insane as I'm reading this thing, when you're doing deals, for example, at one point after you get your education and you know the, the enthusiasm wears off, you're really doing one of two things all the time. You're looking for deals and you're meeting with investors. It's kind of a little boring after a while. And a lot of people they give up because it's mundane. Uh, well, I don't, I just, it doesn't seem to be making a lot of progress. Maybe they even had a setback. And you know, compared to the Navy SEALs training that you're doing it day after day and you don't know how many miles you have to go, you don't know how long you're going to be in the water. Like You don't know when there's an end in sight, yet somehow you endure through it somehow. How do you... And, and obviously, I don't know you can tell what the odds are of, of people quitting. You had that bell that they had to ring, right? And they, it ring, would ring every single day. You had people that are, you know, huge, you know, would never quit, all of a sudden quit. And, and I'm wondering how you were able to stay the course. And as an advice for someone, hey, it's month three, month four, month five, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to brokers, I'm talking to investors, I don't seem to be making much progress. How do you keep moving forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that all really comes down to motivation, right? Like, what are you getting up for in the morning? Like, what is this all for? And if you don't have a really good why, yeah, you're going to be in trouble. And so that's what you see on a regular basis in SEAL training is, you know, you guys are all suffering together. And suddenly there's guys that just kind of break from the group and they go and they ring a bell three times in front of everybody, which signifies that, you know, they quit. It's called ringing out. And you all remember when that person quit because their helmet comes off with their name on it, their rank, the class number, and it gets laid down on this asphalt section called the grinder where we do a lot of morning workouts and it stays there. And so when we do our workouts, it's almost like a constant reminder, a graveyard of all the guys that quit in chronological order when they quit. And out of 173 guys in my class, there's only 13 of that original class number still standing there. So there's a big row of helmets that were set up and I would suggest that, you know, those guys couldn't continue on, you know, with the mundane, they couldn't continue on with, you know, all these failed expectations because the instructors are constantly tricking you. You might finish up an eight mile run and you think that's the end and you're finally like just kind of letting your hair down and then they trick you and say, that's the halfway mark. We're doing this more. And so you're constantly getting just bad situations thrown at you. Uh, but it all comes down to what I would call, you know, what is it that you write on the inside of your hat? And so when we're about to enter into hell week, which is the most difficult part of SEAL training, it's five and a half days long. You get four hours of sleep. That's not four hours per night. That's a grand total of four hours for the next five and a half days. You wind up running over 200 miles during this time. You're getting surf tortured. There's not a dry moment. I went through in February where the water temperature is the absolute coldest. It literally takes your breath away. We call it jackhammering cold because you look like you're hanging on to a jackhammer as you just get immersed in this water and you have to stay there until the instructors tell you you can get out. And so guys are getting hypothermic. You feel like you're going to die. And what you, you learn if you stay there is that the human body can take a whole lot more suffering than you ever imagined before you get the peace of just no more sensation and dying. All right. So you could suffer a lot 
But one of the things the instructors did allow us to do, and they suggested for us to do before we started Hell Week, is they gave us these white felt markers. And on these markers, what they wanted us to do is write on the inside of our hat. And we're supposed to write the things that are going to get us to dig deep when the going gets tough. When you don't feel like doing it anymore, when you are no longer into it, how are you going to reach beyond yourself and continue going? And so an interesting thing is that, you know, none of the guys that ever made it, because we're all looking at, what did you write on the inside of your hat, man? We're looking for inspiration. None of the guys that ever made it wrote their own name. And that is so important because... We are living in a day and age where it seems like it's almost encouraged to like look out for yourself. You know, I'm looking out for number one. We're living in the selfie generation where you ask people, why is it that you're trying to achieve this goal? Why is it that you're going after this accomplishment? And they'll tell you something along the lines of like, I'm working on my brand or I'm looking out for me or I'm loving myself. I hate to hear that because I know in the end, that's not going to be enough. That's not going to get you to dig deep when the going gets tough. So here's the common theme that I saw on the inside of people's hats that did make it through SEAL training. It was three things, three categories, faith, family, and friends. And as I look back, those are the things that I had on the inside of my hat. And I still have the hat, you know, to this day. And, and the funny thing is I had my girlfriend's name on the inside of the hat. So it's a little weird to break out in front of my wife. I'm just kidding. I married the girl, so I get to keep that hat, <laughs> but I still have the hat to this day. You know, faith obviously is so important. I'm a man of faith family. Think about this. How far are you willing to go for yourself? I guess at a certain point, you might say, when you're exhausted, I've tasted enough. I've searched long enough. I've done enough of the mundane. I've stayed up, you know, late enough, you know, working. I'm over it. I'm just, I'm ready to call it in. I'm done burning the midnight oil. You only go so far for yourself before you might throw in the towel. How far are you really willing to go when it's for your family? How, like you will go until the wheels fall off. And so I had family on the inside of my hat, huge. So when the suffering really got up to a certain level where it was difficult, I wasn't thinking about myself. I was thinking about, I will never have that phone conversation with my family, telling them on the phone, when they shouldn't be hearing from me because I should be in training, hey, I quit. Your son's a quitter. No, no, no. I, I, would, I would literally have to die before I have that conversation. You'd have to kill me before I have that conversation. And so these are the types of things that you have to almost like put at the forefront of your mind in terms of like, why am I burning the midnight oil? Why am I suffering through this? Why am I doing all this mundane? It's not for yourself. It's probably not for the money. It, hopefully not. You know, those aren't reasons on the inside of the hat that are really going to get you to dig deep. It's the bigger things. It's the things that you will ultimately regret one day on your deathbed. If you don't focus on these things enough, you'll never regret not making enough money, right? I've done the visits at homes where people are passing away and the things that they regret is not so much the things that they did do is the things they didn't do. As they wish they would have spent more time working on their faith. They wish they would have spent more time with their family and, you know, with their friends. And so those are the important things. It might not necessarily be the thing for everyone. It's a suggestion out there. But at the end of the day, you have to have it determined in your mind. Like, what is it that you would write on the inside of your hat? That's going to be the thing that really gets you to dig deep when the going gets tough. And I had my friend, Scott Helvenston, his name on the inside of my hat. Those are the things that really matter right there. That's so powerful. And when we, cheer, uh, we trace people back who are successful, it comes back to their why. 
and people who are not successful always also comes back to the why it could be about money or about themselves versus the ones who are about their family and they know they need to get themselves out of their job to spend more time with their family so they don't have those regrets. It keeps them going all the time. So I feel like, uh, Chad, I, I would love to talk with you for hours on end because you have such a wealth of experience and wisdom in you. And we're going to draw more out of it at Dealmaker Live here in July. In the meantime, though, someone if people wanted to find out a little bit more about you uh, until we have you on stage here, how can people connect with you? Uh, they just uh, throw in like Navy SEAL Chad Williams. They'll find my website. It's a, it's a long website. It's NavySealChadWilliams.com. Uh, but that's probably the best way. Or on Instagram, I'm a little active on there. It's uh, uh, just at Seal of God on Instagram. Yeah, and great book, everyone. Read Chad's book. It is it is an awesome uh, page turner, and he'll be at Dean Merkel Live here in July in Dallas. Chad, thanks so much for being here on the show today. Thanks, it's Chad. A pleasure. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's fun. Yeah, I found it interesting that Chad focused in on adversity. Like of all the, I think he's got seven things he's going to talk about at Dealmaker Live, and he focused on adversity. And I find that interesting, right? Of all the things you could talk about. Why, I mean, why do you think adversity is, is so important in, in multifamily investing? Well, obviously, it's, it's, it's something that he's going to face in the battlefield, and it's what we all face in multifamily investing. You know, Michael, I just think back to one of the, I hate to say it best, but one of the most influential experiences that you and I had together was a deal that fell through and there was a phenomenal amount of money lost. There was a phenomenal amount of time lost. And I think that was a fundamental aspect of our partnership and of the growth of our business was that adversity. And another thing that Chad talked about was staying calm and that calm is contagious. Man, there was a lot of times in that deal where I could have let my emotions run the day and and that wouldn't have gone well. But staying calm, uh, going through that adversity, I think is fundamental to bring us to where we are. And, and so that adversity is a tremendously important lesson. It's something that people can learn from you know, at Dealmaker Live. Yeah, I used to not like adversity. You know, I mean, who really does? And I used to resist it quite, quite a bit. And I've learned to not necessarily welcome it, not necessarily to embrace it, but to not resist it. Because I always know in adversity, there's a lesson. So I stopped resisting the the adversity, but asking, what am I to learn in here? And you mentioned this one deal that went bad. And, you know, it was, it was very unpleasant, very time consuming. At the end, it cost us a lot of money, but it really brought our, the partners together. At the time, it was just you and I, Nighthawk, and it brought, you know, Garrett. So you learn, you, you, you really form bonds through adversity in this case, and you do learn to deal with complicated matters. I mean, if you as a team, as your partners haven't had adversity, you're going to be tested. And if you haven't been through adversity in, as an individual, you're going to be tested and you're not going to be as resilient. So I think that's right. super, super important. And I don't just say one more thing. If you haven't faced adversity, you probably haven't pushed yourself or your team far enough because that's <laughs> that's where the growth is. It's so funny you say that because I remember when I quit my job, I started reading about all these successful people, you know, Carnegie and things like that and Rockefeller and, you know, even Robert Kiyosaki. And that one thing they all had in common was they all had massive failures. Some of them repeated. And I never had a single failure, yet I considered myself as a fairly, well, as a successful person. And I thought it was probably obviously something wrong with all these famous people. Clearly not me. And so I was just mentally not prepared for the adversity that you get sometimes as an entrepreneur. So the people who have had some adversity have an advantage. If you have not had adversity, that's okay. Then welcome adversity and, you know, and learn to deal with that. It'll make you a stronger person. The other thing also was the why, though. I, I really find it, that that is so interesting. You know, write something on the inside of your helmet and it better not be your own name. Like what? That's a right. weak why. I thought that was fascinating. Right. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And he also talked about something called a wing or a weight. So you face this adversity, and the question is, what are you going to do with it? And you can either let it weigh you down, or you can let it lift you up. And uh, tremendous idea right there. Really applicable. Really useful. 
Uh, I wish we had more time to talk to him. It was it was so great. Yeah, no kidding. So hopefully you'll join us in DealMaker Live in person to hear Chad. We also have, uh, or you can live stream as well. He's going to be speaking. He's going to be keynoting there and he's going to go deeper on a lot of these things. And and also, by the way, if you want to hang out with Drew and I and Garrett and a bunch of other people, the day after it's over on Sunday, uh, Chad is hosting a kind of like a survival adventure boot camp, if you will. And he's buying a whole bunch of explosives. I don't know what for. He won't really tell us. But if you hang out with us, and you want to stretch your mental and physical comfort zone, we'd love to have you there. And I'm going to get the, uh, the URL here. I think it's going to be the michaelblank.com forward slash DML adventure. If you're coming to, uh, to DealMaker Live, you should be getting some emails right now. And we'd love to have you there for that day. So again, awesome conversation with Chad. Thanks for being here. We can't catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles and videos go to themichaelblanc.com there you can also download the free ebook the secret to raising money to buy your first apartment building till next time